uh, and this part of Revelation has been a pretty dark picture uh, that we've been studying. The uh, uh, tribulation has begun, and there's war, and uh, famine, and strife, and disease, and multitudes are dying by the judgment of God, and, and multitudes are dying from uh, just the fallout from the tribulation itself. And we have seen so far that in this time of chaos, which will be uh, initiated by the rapture of the church, the world will be uh, stunned. The lost world who's not looking for the return of Christ will be caught by surprise. The church will be raptured. And it will cause panic in the world. It will cause chaos. And Satan will bring to leadership his man, Antichrist. We've seen over the last two weeks the rise of Antichrist and the rise of the false prophet. Now, Antichrist will be a man, and he will seem to have all the Uh, and he'll be he'll be wise. He'll be smart. He will be uh, intelligent. He will be a good orator. He will be a good speaker. I believe he'll be charismatic, and the world will flock to him. Uh, he will be uh, satanically influenced and possessed. And this will rise to power and unite uh, the old Roman Empire, and will bring unity to their military forces, to their economic influence, and basically will begin to influence control over the whole world. Uh, and, and at the halfway point, we have read and have seen that he will uh, come to light to not be the man he proposes to be. He will actually be very evil, and he will turn on Israel and destruction. And the last half of the tribulation will be worse than in the first half. Now, we've seen his rise to power, and then last week we saw that there will be a second person that Satan will bring to the forefront will be the false prophet. He will have a religious component, a false religious component, he will support the Antichrist, who will support his program, and in the end will move people to worship Antichrist. Uh, and, of course, that's been Satan's goal since the beginning, since the garden, to take God's place, to have himself be worshipped by people. And through the Antichrist, Satan will receive worship as the one empowering these two evil men. Now, the false prophet we studied last week will be gentler and kinder version of the Antichrist. He won't be as intimidating because he'll be a religious leader. He will be able to influence people through false teaching and false religion to worship Antichrist and to, and to ignore the true and living God. Now, in the midst of that uh, dark and depressing scene, if you will, thankfully, praise God, if you're a born-again child of God, you won't be here. You'll be watching it from afar in heaven. Uh, but in, in that dark scene, we have, uh, if you will, uh, beginning in chapter 14, uh, a description of a, of a beautiful picture, of a ray of light. And we have uh, what I wrote down here in my notes as victory in Jesus, that old gospel song, victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus breaks through here uh, in this picture, beginning in, in chapter 14. And what we find is that in Jesus, uh, death has been defeated. In Jesus, sin has been defeated. In Jesus, the grave has been defeated. In Jesus Christ, Satan has been defeated. You see, even right now, while Satan is doing his worst, he, he's a defeated foe. He's lost the war. The battle's over. Uh, it's just waiting for the, the finish of it. He's a defeated foe. And in this picture, we see that it really is finished. 144,000. God sees back 
chapter 7, the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 of these tribes who have been preaching the gospel and have been serving God and were sealed and protected. See them in this beautiful picture opening in chapter 14, standing on Mount Zion in victory with Jesus. That's pretty good, isn't it? In the midst of all the wickedness and the chaos, here are these saints of God, sealed, preserved, through the tribulation, standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. Look at verse 1 and look at this beautiful picture. John said, Then I stood and I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. This is a picture. Now, again, these chapters are a parenthetical. They're not advancing the events of the tribulation. They're filling in detail. And in this picture, this filled in detail, John is describing what it will look like when Jesus has returned to the earth, when Jesus returns. Now, understand this. In Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, the disciples stood out there with Jesus' resurrection body, and he ascended up into the heavens and disappeared. And they were all standing there looking up into the sky where Jesus went. And the angels appeared and said, why are you guys standing here looking up at the sky? Uh, basically, they were saying, get busy and do what he told you to do because he's coming back in the same way. And what, they, what the angels meant is Jesus is physically, personally, literally coming back to this earth in his resurrection body. His feet are going to land on this earth. Man, that's going to be a glorious day. The same way when he's coming back. And this is a picture of Jesus having returned and he's standing on Mount Zion He's standing in the land, the promised land. He's standing where in Israel's land. And with him on this mountain are the 144,000 that were sealed. Now, what does that teach us? Well, I'll tell you the first thing it teaches us is our security in Jesus Christ. Think about it for a minute. In the worst time of human history, the most dangerous time of human history, the seven-year tribulation, God sealed 144,000 that he said are mine. Put a seal on them. Satan couldn't touch them. Antichrist couldn't touch them. The false prophet couldn't touch them. Man, they're preaching. They're out evangelizing. They're serving God. They're standing in the face of evil, and, and evil can't do a thing about it. And at the end, get this, at the end, Jesus standing on Mount Zion, and all 144,000 are standing there with him. Listen, he's not missing one. They're all standing there. Man, I'm going to tell you, listen, I get a lot of questions about this. Pastors, uh, tell me again about eternal security and tell me, is it once saved, always saved true? Listen to me. Once genuinely saved, yes, you're saved forever. Once genuinely saved, once you really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can never be lost again. Why? Because Jesus don't lose any of his sheep. Jesus is a good shepherd. He don't lose any. If he has 100 sheep, he's going to end up with 100 sheep. He started with 144,000 that he sealed that he marked as his, and at the end, he's standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 who have served, and they're safe, and they're there with them. They have victory in Jesus. Now, what about the church today? Listen, in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, at the moment we were saved, the Holy Spirit uh, is our earnest in the, in the King James Version. In the, in the literal translation, he's our guarantee. He's our seal. He's the one who assures our salvation, meaning at the moment you were saved, at the moment you genuinely confessed your sin to God and you ask him to save your soul, God forgave your sin and placed in you his righteousness and the Holy Spirit came to live in you. And that same Holy Spirit who lives in you as a child of God has sealed you so that you can never be lost again. Dear one, listen. 
Not one man or woman in the world who's saved earned their salvation. We didn't do anything to earn it, so you can't do anything to lose it. It's all by the grace of God. You say, well, what causes the confusion? I'll tell you what causes the confusion is people professing to know Jesus and they have no clue who he is. People professing to know Jesus and they live like the world and they live like the devil because they really don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. But if you're saved and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you're saved forever. In fact, Paul went on to say in Ephesians 4.30, he said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed. Don't grieve him. Don't rebel against him who lives in you and who directs you and leads you and teaches you. So listen, just like this uh, 144,000, we can never be lost again. Let me read you one of the great passages in the Bible, uh, John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, that speak to this security, this picture of security we find in this 144,000. And he speaks to that in the church today. Now listen to what Jesus said. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now think about that for a minute. And just think about that first statement. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. You know what that is? That's a personal relationship. That's a, that's a relationship that God Almighty has with you if you're saved. And what he's saying there is if I have this personal relationship with you, you know who I am and I know who you are. In other words, we have this relationship and nothing can break that relationship. Yes, we sin after we're saved. And yes, we act like a fool after we're saved. Not a person in here hadn't act like a fool after they were saved, okay? But it doesn't break our relationship with Jesus because he saved us. And he said, yeah, my sheep wander off sometimes and they, and they don't stay in the field and they don't do what they're supposed to do. But what does a good shepherd do? He takes that stick with a boot hook on it and grabs you around the neck and he, bring, and he brings you back. Why? Because he's a shepherd. And he said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they know me. Now listen to what else he said in verse 28. Here it is. Jesus said, I give to them. Now listen to this. I give them eternal life. Now, if it was anything less than eternal life, Jesus wouldn't say right there that I gave you eternal life. In fact, I, I, would, I would go so far to say as if we could lose it, Jesus would say, I give you eternal life until you screw up. Right? I mean, wouldn't, isn't that what he would say? I mean, I give you eternal life until you act like a fool, and then I'm like, like I don't know you until you get... He didn't say that. He said, I give them eternal life. Now listen, he adds it with this, just because we're slow. So he said this. I give them eternal life, and they shall... What? And what does that mean? Never perish. Is that hard? Mm -mm, no. Jesus said, I give you eternal life, Oh, and on top of that, just in case you don't get the eternal life thing, that means you're never going to perish. It means you're never going to be judged. You're never going to go into doom. You're never going to perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all. Listen, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And I had some smart aleck say to me one time, well, you know, we can't be lost again. You know, God won't lose, but we can jump out of his hand. I said, man, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd slap you. What do you mean jump out of his hand? Him and, a, him and a father are one, and the father gave you to Jesus a gift, and he says, nobody can take you out of my father's hand. If nobody can take me out of the father's hand, you think I can jump out? You think I can even take myself out? I, hey, listen, I didn't jump in there. He saved me. I'm not the one who got in there in the first place. He did. So how can I undo it? Here's the point. It really encouraged me this week, studying and, and reading this 
144,000, that's a lot of people. That's 12,000 out of East Tribe Israel. That 144,000 have been all over the world in this tribulation with Antichrist hating them, the false prophet hating them, Satan hating them, their, their lives. Man, they've been, they've been persecuted, chased, but God's preserved their lives. And at the end of the tribulation, Jesus standing on Mount Zion and there's all 144,000 standing there with him. Let me tell you what that means. When the church age is over and Jesus raptures the church, Every single person that Jesus saved is going to be standing there with him in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's not going to lose any. He's not going to forget one. The rapture's not going to come and some Christian get left behind. You know, when you have little kids, you know, you go somewhere and they're running all around and you leave and go get in the car and you go, man, I think we're missing one. I'm not, just anybody, you know, well, let's take inventory. God doesn't have to do that. He's going to keep us all. So they're there. Now notice what they're doing in verses two and three. They are praising and worshiping God. This is good. John said, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of, of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These 144,000 are standing there on Mount Zion with Jesus and they're worshiping, they're singing. And John says, man, I heard, I heard these voices from heaven. Now what he's saying, these voices like many waters and like loud thunder, there's worship going on in heaven. Now there's, there's already worship going on in heaven. And so Jesus comes back to the earth. He's standing there at 144,000 with him and they're worshiping. And notice, notice this, the order that he puts it in here. He said, now they're worshiping now notice in verse three, before the living creatures and the elders. Now I like that. That's important. Don't skip over that. You will remember all the way back in chapter five is where the worship began. The elders are in heaven. The 24 elders around the throne, which represent the rapture church. What's the church going to be doing in heaven? Worshiping, singing. And here's the picture when you put this whole thing together from chapter five to here and through the end, here's what you're going to find. As God moves his plan to completion and Jesus is standing on Mount Zion, he's come back, he's going to institute his kingdom. Everybody's worshiping. Everybody's singing. Everybody's singing. The, listen, the elders, the church is singing around the throne of God. And, and the four living creatures that circle the throne of God, the, the, those creatures that were described with all the wings and covering their face and all, man, they're singing too. They're singing, they're worshiping God. They're praising God. And the elders are praising God. And, and you know, we remember all the martyred saints that are under the throne that are waiting to get their resurrection bodies who were killed during the tribulation. Guess what they're doing? They're singing, they're praising God. They're praising God. All that, listen, these 144,000 that are saved out of the tribulation that were sealed by God, they're joining in, they're praising God. And then the Bible tells us all the angels of heaven, they praise God. Now, I don't know, it's hard to get it in your mind because I suspect by that time when you get your resurrection body and these 144,000 are there with Jesus, I think they can all sing is what I'm saying. And they all sing well. And the harpist harping there, doing, you know, doing their thing, uh, there are other instruments in heaven. The Bible talks about trumpets. And there's a band in heaven and they're playing. And I bet they're good. What do you think? And so you get, you, get, you get the musicians playing, you get the angels singing, you got the, the, the rapture church praising God for all it's worth because man, we've been raptured and we're in heaven. 
You got all the angels of heaven singing, the four living creatures around the throne are singing, these 144,000 are singing. At the very end of the thing, the Bible says, and every living creature will praise God. Man, that's a chorus, isn't it? That's the scene that John says here. He says, man, I, I see this thing and, and, and it's magnificent. And everybody's singing and these guys are singing. Now, what are they singing? He said, uh, he said they're singing a song uh, that only they know because they were redeemed out there. I call it the song of redemption. The song of being redeemed. What are we going to sing when we get to heaven? Song of redemption. You say, well, why are they singing a song nobody else knows? Well, because they were saved out of the earth. They had an experience nobody else had. But you know what? We have an experience right now they don't have and that they won't have. And we're going to be singing in heaven. We'll be singing a song of redemption. You know, I was thinking... We, we put a lot of effort into, <clears throat> Jeff does, not we, I shouldn't say we, Jeff works hard, and the musicians and the singers. They put a lot of effort into singing part and the worship part, and they do a great job. And sometimes, I mean, let's just be honest, sometimes when we're sitting out there, we're not really participating a lot, are we? I mean, we're, we're like enjoying it, but we're not really singing too loud, and especially in the early service, everybody's still trying to drink their coffee and get awake, and you know, and see, and I know how some of y'all are, you know how long it takes you to get here. So you roll out of bed, wash your face, comb your hair, throw your clothes on, and you're here and you've only been up for 15 minutes. So I know, you know, you've been up for 20 minutes or whatever it is. So you're not even awake yet. And so the, the worship's a little, sometimes a little slow in the early service. Listen, we should worship, we should sing, and we should express our worship to God. It doesn't mean you got to do anything crazy. But you really, during the worship time, even if your worship style is quiet and introspective, that you're thinking about what's being said, you ought to worship and not be just sitting there with your mind on what you're going to have for lunch or whatever you're going to do. You know why? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 15, that we ought to continually, listen, not just sometimes, but we ought to continually offer the worship of praise to God. We should continually have an attitude of praise. When you're at work, doing whatever you're doing, you ought to be praising God. When you're at school, you ought to be praising God. When you're, when you, whatever you're doing, you ought to be praising God. He said continually, we, we are going to praise God. I'll tell you what, what, what is untenable to me for Christians, for somebody to say, man, I'm saved and never want to worship God. How can that be? How can those two things even be? I don't know about you. I can only, I can only speak to me, but I can drive across the bridge early in the morning when the sun's coming up and see the glory of God in a sunrise You'd be moved to tears. I mean, because, because of knowing who God is. How can, you, how can that not be for a person who really has a relationship with God? And I'll tell you, and I, I know somebody will find fault with this, but it's okay. How can a person say, man, I'm saved. I'm a born again child of God and never want to be among God's people. Never want to worship together. Never want to be involved with God's people for the fellowship and encouragement. I know about COVID, not that aside right now. But I'm saying, why isn't there a desire why isn't it in the heart to sing and to praise with God's people and to be around his word? I don't understand that. Everywhere I went in the world, in the military, I tried to find other Christians to, to have fellowship with and to Bible study with and to pray with and to be around. And if that desire, if that desire is not in a person's heart, they're either not saved at all or they are saved and they're so carnal in their sins that they've lost all their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. These 144,000 are singing for all it's worth, man. They're praising God. You know why? Because they're standing there next to their Savior. They're standing there next to the King. How can we 
not be excited about that? I don't know. I want to spend the rest of our time and look at the character of these 144,000. These are some unique fellows. Look at verses four and five at what John says here about them. He said, these are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins or the word there is chaste, pure. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and to the lamb. And then verse five, and in their mouth was found no deceit for they are without fault before the throne of God. Man, what a picture, what a description of 144,000 men who were God's people. Think about what it says here. Number one, it says they were not defiled with women. Now, let me tell you what that means and what it does not mean. First of all, what it means is that they were morally pure. It means that they were not sinful in the area of sexuality, which is incredibly rampant in our society today. It does not mean that they were not married at some point. It doesn't mean that they, that they didn't have a wife. Why? Because in Hebrews 13:4, the Bible says the marriage bed is undefiled. If they were married, then fine. The Bible doesn't say either way. Now it does use the word virgin, but virgin usually means pure or chaste, or it could mean that they weren't married at all. Okay, you pick. The fact is this, here's the point. Unlike the world that we live in today, and unlike certainly the world that they're going to live in in the tribulation where, where corrupt conduct and sexual immorality and sexual practices are rampant, they will be even more rampant in that day. It means that these men were of noble character, that these men uh, were of purity of heart and mind and in their intent to serve God. Now we, we had our men's breakfast yesterday morning and part of our lesson yesterday was discussing, uh, discussing our, our responsibilities as men. And, and one of the areas where we talked about where, we can, where, where men can get trapped real easy and get tripped up is in, in sexual misconduct. And we talked about how, how important that is that we, that we maintain that area of our lives and that we be pure. The Bible says all 144,000 of these men were pure in their hearts. Now listen, it's more than just not committing the act. It's more than just saying, well, I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never you know, gone out and, 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 and been immoral uh, before I was married. I never slept with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. It is a heart issue. It's a heart and mind issue. It's a, it's a, you see, Jesus said we can commit the sin already before we commit the act because we commit it in our hearts. And committing the sin in our hearts is just as bad as committing it physically. And what the Bible's saying is these 144,000 men were pure of heart. They didn't, they didn't allow that in their lives. And so they were, listen, because of their purity, they were powerful instruments of God and they will be a powerful instrument of God in the time when the world is in utter chaos. Now think of the contrast. Our society today is eat up with sexual immorality in every conceivable way. I mean, you can... A person can go down the dark path of online pornography. They can, they can get involved in whatever, whatever's going on in the world and affairs at work and flings and all kinds of stuff. Young people, single people have no problem today living together and sleeping together. Listen, listen, let me, let me, I'm not an old guy 
just beating on this drum. I want you to listen to something. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, listen to what God's word says. For this is the will of God. Listen, this is the will of God. Does it not need to say anything else? It's the will of God. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. I, I can't say it any, any clearer than that. To us, to all of us. It is the will of God as a child of God, as his redeemed, that our sanctification, our set, being set apart for God, being set apart for him, be marked by sexual purity. That we use our bodies in accord with his word, that it be within the bond of marriage and not outside of marriage or allowing it. Listen, the world today accepts anything. Matter of fact, the world today encourages the misuse of sexuality in the worst ways, the perversion of it. And God said, listen, God said, for this 144,000 and for us today, I want you to be different. I don't want that thing to be a part of your life to misuse it. Now I have time to, this isn't a message about this, but, but it is interesting that this is the first thing God said about these men, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? It's the very first character trait. Listen, they're pure. I read behind one preacher this week, I think it was John Phillips, I read behind a bunch of guys. It could have been him, it could be somebody else. And he said, there's no weapon, listen to me, there's no weapon in the arsenal of God like a pure man or woman who serves God. No weapon in God's arsenal. Like a pure saint of God who will share and testify in purity in their heart. Hmm. I would suggest these men, these 144,000 were powerful instruments of God because they weren't caught up in the sin of the world and they weren't given over to it. May we be the same in our lives. Secondly, it says here that they were sold out for Jesus, followed the lamb wherever he goes. One writer was funny. He said, you know what that means? If Jesus said, I need somebody to go pull the beard of the beast, he said, they were all raising their hands, I'll go. He said, if I need somebody to go stand in the face of Antichrist and stand him down over his policies and his principles and preach the gospel to him, they were all ready to go. Whatever God asked them to do, they were ready to go. They were sold out. They followed the lamb wherever he went. Their loyalty to Jesus Christ was unquestionable. Their commitment to serve God beyond question. John said, man, God said these guys were all in 100%. Kind of makes us look at ourselves, doesn't it? kind of makes us examine our own lives and go, Lord, am I really all in? Am I really committed like these 144,000? Am I really to step into, step into the fray? Am I willing to, to do that? And we like to say in our hearts, God, I am. Then you can't get somebody to teach Sunday school. You can't get anybody to work with the kids. You can't get anybody to, to call somebody that's sick. I'm just asking the question, I mean, are we like the 144,000 or, or are we too concerned with what we want to do in life? Well, I'm too busy to do that. Mm. These 144,000, listen, follow the lamb wherever he goes. Follow him wherever he goes. Why? Because he saved me. I want him everything. Listen, you know what the word Lord means? It means master. It means he owns me. He's my God. Is there anything he could ask me to do that I shouldn't do? No, I should obey him at every step. 
Jesus said this, listen. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 24. This is a hard, listen, this is tough right here. If anyone desires to come after me, now watch this. If anybody desires to follow me, two things. Number one, let him deny himself. Well, that's a whole sermon. Let him deny himself. And two, let him take up his what? His cross and follow me. Now, let me tell you what them two things mean real quick. To deny self means to get self off the throne of our lives. That's what it means. Get, uh, get me off the throne and let Jesus be on the throne. Get me off the center deciding what my life's going to be and let God decide what my life's going to be. That's, that's tough. Can't do it in the power of the flesh. It's really in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then they see the part, take up the cross and follow me. The, the, listen, the people John was writing to in the first century, they got this way more than we do. A cross was a symbol of suffering and death. He said, hey, you want to follow me? You know what's entailed? Listen to what Jesus is saying here. You really want to follow me? You really want to go wherever I go and pick up the cross and start dragging it and come with me? What Jesus is saying is the Christian life is not always going to be easy. And the more, listen, listen, the closer we are to following Jesus, the harder it's going to get. Now, there are some Christians who are, you know, like a, like a, a fly, or, you know, a bug around a the light. They're just circling around a the light. They might be saved, they might not be saved, but they're not getting too close to the light because they don't, you know, they're just going to hang out out there and enjoy the light, but they're not getting involved. But then there are the Christians who pick up the cross and feel the weight and the load and the responsibility and they start dragging that thing and the world hates you for it because if you're dragging the cross, the world's going to see it and they go, man, you're one of them. And they're going to hate you for it and it's going to get tough. And life isn't always going to go easy. But Jesus said, if you want to follow me, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. This 144,000 they followed Jesus wherever he went. Number three, very quickly. Number three, they are the first fruits. You see that? So watch now. They're pure. They're morally pure. They're holy. Their lives are set apart to God in their sanctification. They follow Jesus wherever he goes. And Jesus said, and they're the first fruits. Now, what's a first fruit? I've shared this with you before. First fruit in the Old Testament was the first sample of the crops. It was the first harvest. And it usually came really early. And if the first fruit was really good... It was good because they said, boy, the rest of the crop's going to be really good because the first fruits were good. Well, what does Jesus mean that they're the first fruits? I think for this group, it means two things. Because by, by the way, Jesus said, if you're saved, you're the first fruit. Okay? You're the first fruit of everybody who's going to be saved, the whole harvest. But listen, for these guys, I think it means two things. Number one, they're all Jewish. There's 144,000 of them, 12,000 out of each tribe. When Jesus sets up his kingdom on this earth, his millennial kingdom, there's going to be a a kingdom of Jews who are all going to be saved when the kingdom starts and they're going to be the seed royal that starts it. They're going to go into that kingdom along with other saved Jews that Jesus will preserve at the, at the battle of Armageddon and save them. They're going to be the first fruit of the kingdom of Jews that will be on this earth. And Jesus will sit on the throne of David and rule over them, which was promised to David back in 1000 BC. Secondly, they're the first fruits of all those who are saved out of the tribulation. Now, we know we've already studied that multitudes will be saved out of the tribulation. They'll trust Jesus and they'll be saved. What will happen to most of them? They'll die. Antichrist will kill them, remember? Without the mark of the beast, can't buy, trade, sell. You'll get arrested, uh, you know, persecuted, uh, tortured, and executed. 
This 144,000 are sealed by God. He can't touch them. But all them other people getting saved, they're not protected physically and Antichrist will kill them. So they're the first fruits of all those who will, who will go into the, into the kingdom of God. And then finally, he said they are without fault before the throne of God. You see that? Man, that's important. Listen, they are without fault before the throne of God, which means they are blameless. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean they were perfect. Why? Because they're human beings. And I guarantee you, they were just as weak and sinful in some areas as we are. In fact, I can only imagine being in the tribulation and preaching the gospel and antichrist and those picking on you all the time and messing with you just because God didn't let them get killed doesn't mean he didn't let them get persecuted. Okay. And so they had to put up with that for three and a half years. I'm just thinking from a human perspective, by the time that thing's over, I might be thinking sinful, like, Lord, just burn them up. Just set the whole place on fire, bunch of heathen. You know, I mean, I might be sinfully thinking that way. But no, they are blameless before God. Now, why are they blameless before God? The same reason you're blameless before God, if you're born again, because the blood of Jesus washed them clean. That's good, isn't it? Blameless before God, pure before God. Why? Because God made them pure. I had a couple other thoughts, but we're about out of time. Let me just close with this. There are two things that God wants for you and me today that we can draw from these 144,000, which are a bright spot in the middle of this whole narrative here. Number one, God wants our sanctification, just like them. You say, what's sanctification? It means to be set apart for God, sanctified, set apart out of this world, separated from this world, to walk with God, to serve God. He wants that for you and me. You say, well, why, why am I not more sanctified? Well, I'll give you a clue. The weakness is not on God's part, okay? There's only two of you. So if I'm not all I ought to be, it's not God's problem that I'm not all I ought to be. The problem is mine. The problem is me, Okay. It's my surrender. It's my, it's my willingness to be sanctified, okay? But God wants that for you. And secondly, God wants us to be like the 144,000 that he wants us to serve him in this world where we are. I mean, I don't have time to read it, but let me tell you, in, in Luke chapter 15, verses four to seven, the Pharisees were just all over Jesus for hanging out with lost people. I mean, they were just giving them, why are you hanging around with sinners and, and, you know, and publicans and Samaritans? Why are you doing that? And Jesus told three stories, three parables. And the first one was the lost sheep. Jesus said, which one of you, he said to them Pharisees, now he said, which one of you is a shepherd and you have a hundred sheep and one of them's lost when you come home that you're not going to leave the 99 and go find that lost sheep? Which one of you as a shepherd is going to do that? And all the Pharisees being, knowing shepherds would have went, yeah, we do that. And Jesus said, and when he go out and he find that lost sheep, the shepherd puts him up on his shoulders and, and rejoices that he found a lost sheep that he didn't get eat or killed or nothing. And he brings it back and he calls his neighbor and says, come, let's rejoice that we found this lost sheep. What's Jesus, what's that whole parable about? Because then he tells the parable of the lost coin. And then he tells the parable of the prodigal son, which all teach the same thing, all three of them. What's Jesus saying there? Same thing he's saying to us. He says, look, we can sit around in our self-righteous smugness like the, like the Pharisees and think, you know, why are we hanging around with that world out there? Why, why do we want to go out there and do that? You know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, no, Jesus said, listen, there's rejoicing in heaven when one lost sheep gets found. When we go out there and one lost person gets saved, one, one person who is without Christ comes to faith in Jesus Christ and they get saved, there's rejoicing in heaven. 
Jesus said, there's far more rejoicing in winning the loss than sitting around in your self-righteousness thinking everything's okay. Jesus wants us to be like the 144,000, be sanctified, and then be busy doing what he called us to do, okay? Do you have victory in Jesus today? Can you say that? You say, well, I'm, I'm going to stand with Jesus when the time comes because he saved me. If you can't save that, would you come to Christ today? Would you get saved? Today could be your, your opportunity on the video. If you're watching live or you're watching the video later, listen, Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. You have to confess your sin, put your faith in him, ask him to forgive you. He'll save you. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of the 144,000. <clears> thank you for their victory as they stand uh, and will stand on Mount Zion with you. Thank you, Lord, that when you rapture us, we're going to be with you forever. And we have the victory because you want it for us. God, maybe there's somebody today uh, in this room watching online and they saved. God, they can be saved right now if they will just bow their heart and humble themselves and say, oh God, I'm a sinner and I know it. I've sinned and I've offended you. And God, I believe your son, Jesus Christ, died on that cross to pay for my sin and the sin of the whole world. God, forgive me and save me. I'm asking for your forgiveness. God, you will save anybody who asks. Bless the invitation now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and I can pray with your help, or you have questions, you come. Uh, we're going to sing. You